Well, good morning, Disciples Church. Happy New Year to you. It's great to be together. Uh, if you grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, this morning we turn to chapter 3 together. As you do, I'd like to pray over us in this new year. Father, hallowed be your name. We come to you through the intercession of Christ our Lord. Savior, the power of God the Holy Spirit at work in us. Oh, oh, how your mercy, Lord, is new every morning and is abundant upon us, who you've called and saved and sent forth in these days that you've made, these days you've given, a new day, a new year, Lord entrusted to us by you, the holy and supreme God. Um, there's so many ways that we can, we, we can miss this gift, this, um, this appointment. And I pray, Lord, that as we arrive this morning, we, we're in tune with it. Um, we're in tune with just how remarkable it is for all that you have done to make us yours. Lord, that we know you. Oh, how sweet it is to know you, to be reconciled to you, uh, to be born again, and to be uh, sent forth um, for your purposes, for your namesake. And so, Lord, I just pray in this new year, Lord, and in our own individual lives, that there is just a, a real walking and talking with you, a real abiding and enjoying who you are, what you've done, a real resting in you, Lord, and, and surrendering ourselves to your word and will, um, to, to obey your commands and, and to um, heed and, and take good advantage of the opportunities you assign to us each day. Lord, bless um, the testimony of our, um, of our lives, of our marriages, our parenting, our children, uh, our working, our um, moving and, and acting and living among this community that you've ordained to put us in, um, by which we live, by which we um, labor and, and participate. God, I, I thank you for your hand upon us. We're so lost without you, and we have so much more than we know how to even thank you for in Christ. And so we come grateful to a new year, um, Lord, to say, do your work, do your work among us. Um, break our, our shackles, break our, our struggles, and fill us with the joy of the Lord. And let that joy be known. The gospel of Jesus Christ would be saving many, both near and far. Here we are, Lord, committing ourselves to you for your glory in the year of 2024. Do your work in us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. As we move into chapter 3 of Luke, we, we really turn to a new beginning in the story. Because both John and Jesus are no longer young kids as they were when we left off at the end of chapter 2. Um, they're no longer in their teens, but now likely in their early 30s. 
And a lot has changed um, and transpired over the last couple decades. And so Luke sets the stage for this new chapter uh, with some important signposts and markers. Look with me at Luke chapter 3, verses 1 in the first part of 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonidas, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Pausing there, as the curtain rises on the beginning of the public testimony of both John the Baptist first and then Jesus himself, we're reminded again of the oppressive political landscape as pagan rulers are in charge of the land. Uh, Not only are these political leaders wicked and man-centered and opposed to God, but those who are leading all of Judaism, the chief priests, are apostate, legalistic, hypocritical, and corrupt through and through. This is the testimony of these seven individuals and much of the backdrop that Luke is looking to set for us. If you remember from an earlier sermon in Luke, authors would often use markers of particular rulers as a way to declare when something was happening instead of the hard year, month, week, date that we would mark that event by in our modern context. Tiberius Caesar has been in power, according to this testimony, for 15 years since the reign of Augustus Caesar. If you remember, Augustus Caesar was reigning over all of Rome when John and Jesus were born, but now a new Caesar reigns over all of Rome. If you remember, Herod the Great was the governor of Galilee, became king over all Judea. He was the one who had the male children who were under the age of two killed, massacred in all of Galilee in his maddened hunt for the Messiah to eliminate this promised Messiah. After Herod the Great's Death, Judea is divided into four territories known as the Herodian Territory. And it's his sons largely that are appointed to rule over those territories. And before we get to some of them, Luke introduces us to essentially kind of the next in line under Caesar over this region, and that's Pontius Pilate, who is a, a, he's of Roman descent. Um, and named the fifth governor over all Judea in A.D. 36. Pilate is known, and we'll see throughout the Gospel testimonies, as proud, arrogant, cynical, and and constantly vacillating in, in his weaknesses. And we see that represented as we read further into the testimonies that we have. The divide of the territories in the region there are ruled not by kings now, but tetrarchs, 
which is a term for joint ruler of, of sorts. Um, these are some of the additionally named rulers that Luke gives us. The first, Herod. This is Herod Antipas, who was named Tetrarch of Galilee, and is the one who will later have John, the focus of our sermon today, beheaded. He's also the one that Pilate will send Jesus to during his series of trials, the end of Jesus' life before the cross. So there's a lot of Herods, so we have to keep the Herods straight. Herod Antipas. His brother is named Philip. He's also assigned to rule during this time. And they were both sons of Herod the Great. Finally, a lesser-known tetrarch named Licinius is, is named here. These are essentially the Roman authorities of the land, ruled during the time of John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry, all of what we're about to delve into. Also noted here is high priest, the authorities essentially over the Jews, over Judaism. Annas Caiaphas. Annas served as high priest first and was the most powerful figure in all of Judaism. He was removed by the Romans and succeeded by his son-in-law Caiaphas. Now, even though Caiaphas was named the high priest, Annas still held the most prominent role uh, among the Jews, almost seen as a godfather-like figure, still wielded a ton of authority, even though he no longer held the title. They both were super corrupt and benefiting directly from religious systems that they put into play, collections that they were making among the people. Um, the role of the high priest has, has been totally profane at this point in this era. It's become a, a position of pure political appointment in Rome, and, and really the job is just to keep the Jews in line while they get to have room to flex and be benefited by their position. Their ultimate loyalty was no longer to the faith um, or the practice of Judaism, but ultimately it was to their political power, their personal gain that they longed for. The, their wickedness, their self-serving priorities are at their peak. Later we'll see when both Annas and Caiaphas play a major role in the arrest of the innocent Jesus and the false trials they hold in the middle of the night to manipulate the situation unto his crucifixion. Job chapter 9 verse 24 says, The earth was given into the hand of the wicked. As these seven men are named by Luke, the opening of chapter 3 of his gospel, as the political and religious rulers of the day, this is the landscape Luke is showing us. A truly wicked leadership. It was in this climate, in this climate, that both John the Baptist and Jesus would go to work, would begin their ministry. All that God ordained for them to do.
But what's amazing is that all the political power and authority that these seven held in that day and age, none of them are as well known in history as the humble, lowly voice that will emerge from the wilderness named John the Baptist. The influence that John would go on to have in preparing the way for the Christ would far exceed these rulers of church and state. And therefore, it's a wonderfully helpful takeaway for us, church, today. God's ordained his word for us to have the study. And that is that political dominance does not control the narrative of creation ultimately. But he who is almighty and reigns over it all is the one who rules. God's will and work to ordain this obscure man to emerge from the wilderness with this message will far exceed the impact of these rulers. And so it continues to be for us today. As God is the one who ultimately reigns over all things and is at work in his redeemed people, the church, in the preaching and testimony of the gospel, in the most profound and eternal impact, even in the midst of a truly wicked and corrupt generation such as the one we live in, God is mighty and mightily at work. It's really important that we never lose sight of this, Christian, because the wicked agenda and actions of the world can really begin to impact us if we let them. Christian, we need to never lose sight of our significance in the world. Not because you and I are significant in and of ourselves, but because of the significance of the one we serve and testify of. This is our place in the world. The call that God's put on our lives. And it's a profound one. J.C. Ryle said it well. Let us beware of slacking our hands from any work of God. Because of the wickedness of the time. Or the number and power of our adversaries. And he quotes Ecclesiastes 11.4. He that observeth the wind shall not sow. He that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. He continues, let us work on and believe that help will come from heaven when it is most needed. In the very hour when a Roman emperor and ignorant priest seemed to have everything at their feet, the Lamb of God was about to come forth from Nazareth and set up the beginnings of his kingdom. What he has done once, he can do again. In a moment, he can turn the church's midnight into the blaze of noonday. Amen and amen. Any man, woman, or child here today who belong to Christ are able to have a far greater impact on the, on the people's eternal lives around us than any social media influencer, politician, athlete, or celebrity of our day. 
And we need not forget it. May we all keep in keen view just how much God is at work in little old us who are faithful to serve him, to trust him, to make much of him in these days he gives us. May it be so. Now, we have to remember that only a very small group of people have been direct witnesses or heard the testimony of the arrival of the Messiah. I mean, so far in the first two chapters. This is a small group, if you're really slow to think about it. And so the larger community around John and Jesus, it is still really a mystery to them who these two are. With this in mind, remember with me that the Old Testament finished with the promise of the Messiah. And since then, 400 years of silence, the people only had hope to hear news of the promised one's arrival. This is where God has ordained John to go to work. To announce that people need to get ready for the kingdom of God is at hand. For the Messiah has come to save his people from their sins. Look with me at the next part of verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So much that sets the table in understanding the testimony of John the Baptist that we have even just right here in this verse. The help of other gospels, we can dig a little further. John did uh, was, also, was already mentioned by Luke of having gone to the wilderness. If you remember at the close of chapter 1, Luke 1.80, And the child grew and became strong in the spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Okay. Unique life for 30 years. Some have conjectured that his parents were really old when they had him. Remember how old they were? So there's a good chance that he has now lived a lot of his life, even potentially beyond his parents in, in this unique season. And, and his wilderness life is just so unique. I mean, the fact that John was ordained by God to wait for the Lord's call in the wilderness of Judea is a remarkable thing to consider, especially when we slow to understand that context. That wilderness of Judea was desolate. Going from the hill country of Judah on the west to the shores of the Dead Sea on the east, north to the Jordan River Valley, his stretch, this stretch of land by which he lived was barren and vast and lifeless. Some historians describe it as sterile, like that of the Sahara Desert, or even our own nearby Death Valley. The strength, therefore, patience, Contentment that John would have had to have grown in to navigate this environment for so long is really a remarkable preparation for his ministry to come. It, I find it interesting that both Jesus and John spent time in the wilderness stripped of the good and normal provisions that the cultures used to to be still to be focused on God 
before their ministry began. Sometimes we're longing for more. And what the Lord might ordain for us is less. That we would be still and be satisfied in the Lord. Be prepared for what He has before us. The model of finding quiet space to be still with God. The model to fast from the provisions of daily life. To really be focused on the Lord in prayer is one that we all can still benefit by today as the Lord prescribes in his word. It is a practice you likely are not going to find your way to without some intentional design, uh, without some intentional planning on your part. But consider with me, if you will, how it might look for you in the new year to prioritize time to break into your normal and your schedule, to be still with God, to fast, to pray, to turn off the noise and the busyness of daily life. Now, we don't need to go far to do this. We just need to go far enough to not be, interu- un- to not be interrupted, to just be simple before the Lord. I pray this is a real blessing for us as we seek um, quality, uninterrupted time with the Lord in preparation for all that he has for each of us in this new year that he's entrusted to us. Now, it was not uncommon for God to meet those that he called to important ministries out of the countryside in the wilderness. Often the prophets and leaders of old were called to action from the wilderness or told to spend time in the wilderness before the Lord ordained them to go forth in ministry and on mission. I mean, consider the potency of those that God called in some kind of this fashion in Abram, Moses, Joshua, and others who emerged to great ministry from encounters like this. And so back to the second part of verse 2. The word of God came to John. The call of the Lord finally came. It was time to go to work. Christian, don't let this, don't let this sneak past you. I and mean, think about this. He's been waiting for this call, this time to act for 30 years. I mean, the purpose of his life was this. And then essentially the Lord ordains that he wait and wait and wait and wait. That's a lot of waiting. Especially for the very thing that you were born to do. And so in that, how quickly can we, like those who have come before us, Want to circumvent that. Want to say, I'm tired of waiting. I want it now. I want what I want now. Even the good things. Even the good things that God's called me to. We're going to get it. And many of us relate to this. And so I just ask you to consider, what have you been waiting for? And if you're honest, are you feeling a little impatient? The discipline of patience, of waiting, is one that our flesh is not good at. 
like Veruca Salt, we want it now. And are quick to act that way. Whether we see it in ourselves or not. Now we may not kick and scream like she did in such an obnoxious way. But we surely can feel this way many days. Well, we're relegated to just simply wait. But church, waiting and patience is one of God's most important tools on our lives to refine us, to shape us, to get us ready for what he's prepared us for. Scripture says time and time again, like we read in Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Because I'm an A-type guy, uh, I like to get it done. Let's go. I can really struggle with this. Um, but by God's grace, it is an area that he's at work in me. Um, and it's taken a long time. But praise God, I, I'm beginning to see the work of it. it it's, it's one of the biggest ways and areas that I really see some real fruit in my life. And I'm rejoicing in it. It's not necessarily what I want, but I can see the goodness of God in it. Uh, with more and more years behind me, life and ministry, and a front row seat for so many of your lives, I can see the goodness of God's work for us to wait, for us not to have what we want now. We're often not as ready as we think we are. And when we think it's time, it might be good and ready, but not still yet God's perfect time. The late great Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon once spoke of the importance of our waiting related to our very gospel when he said, we preach a gospel whose chief glory lies in the future. The blessings which we proclaim have a most important bearing upon the present, but the stress and emphasis of them relate to the future. And therefore, it is that oftentimes men reject our testimony because to them the time is not yet, or they doubt its truth because they do not at once see the results produced which we foretold. Brethren, every promise of God's word has its own appointed time of fulfillment, and every doctrine or privilege has its own allotted hour. There is an election of grace, but we shall not know all who are included in it until we meet the whole company of the faithful at the right hand of God. There is a redemption by blood, but the fulfillment, but the fullness of that redemption will not affect these mortal bodies until the triumph of the resurrection has sounded out its mighty blast over land and sea. Then shall we see how Christ has redeemed the bodies as well as the souls of his chosen ones. Take any blessing that you please and the same rule applies. Although there is much in the covenant of grace to be enjoyed, today there is much more 
that is yet to come. To that I say, amen. I think it's good for our souls to consider this, to not blow past the uniqueness of John's testimony, the stripped-down nature of his life in the wilderness, the amount of years of his waiting for this call, and what essentially is going to be a pretty short-lived life after this point. Church, we need to learn to wait on the Lord. This is one of the most important ways our faith goes to work in this life. Fruit of the Spirit, patience. We, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for us. That wherever you're running out of patience, you would be refueled by the promises of God. By the power of God to do His perfect will in your life. In His perfect time. And we count it good. Thankfully, John waited for God's call and it finally came. Hear it again with me in the second part of verse 2. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The wait is over. The call has come. It's time to go to work. Before we get to what John would go on to do, notice something else that we're given here, and that is that Luke refers to John as a son of Zechariah. This is an important detail. Prophets of old were commonly introduced in Scripture in, with two big markers. <clears throat> By listing the current rulers as a chronological setting to their career, as Luke has done here for John the Baptist in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, but also customary is that the prophet is introduced as the son of someone, as Luke also does here. Luke's mention of John being the son of Zechariah is helpful to us readers of this gospel account, for it takes us back to the descriptions that the angel Gabriel gave to Zechariah about John's forthcoming ministry that we read in Luke chapter 1, 13 through 17. The angel said these things about John the Baptist by synopsis. You can leave that verse up. For he will be great before the Lord, the angel says. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the Lord a people prepared. The other Gospels speak of God's special call on John's life as well. We could peek at them in Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, 1 through 3, the opening words of that Gospel. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John is the promised voice of God to ordained by God to call out, prepare God's people for the Lord. He's the announcer that, the, that will proclaim the Lord has come. He's an announcer more than the angels were at Jesus' birth. To say that he's arrived, no, John's a special man chosen by God, led by the Holy Spirit, to get ready God's chosen people for the work of Christ, to save them from their sins. In John's gospel, 
the Apostle John says this of John the Baptist. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Matthew's gospel, John is described in this way. Matthew chapter 3, 1 through 4. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John, who wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food, locusts and wild honey. What a moment. What a moment in time this is that we encounter here today, church. God, in all of his perfect design and wisdom, planned for the Messiah, the, the Redeemer, to have an announcer, a forerunner, a prophet, who would begin to tell the world that it was time to repent. For the forgiveness of sins, for the kingdom of God was at hand. The Messiah is here, is ready to save his people from their sins. And this is what Luke speaks to next in verse 3. Look with me, Luke 3, 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Only in Luke do we see that John moved about to share his message of calling people to repentance. In Matthew and Mark, it reads that the people come to him. And so we really both are true um, in these accounts. For example, Matthew 3, 5 through 6, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So it seems that many made the trip from the city center, from Jerusalem, to this region in Judea, where the Jordan is, where, where John is testifying and announcing and preaching and baptizing. The word was spreading. And the fact that this growing ministry wasn't happening in the city center seems to be really a purposeful rebuke of the Lord to the religious elites and the establishment was, which was located in the more prominent spaces like Jerusalem. Like the Messiah, Jesus, John was humble and in no need of pomp, or royal places to bring God's truth to bear. He came to the lowly to bring radical revolution. This is so that it was truly the Lord who would get the credit. Paul speaks to this so well in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-31, the design of God for his purpose in doing things this way. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're going to see more testimony of John's humility in future sermons about him. Excited to get to those points of clarity. They're a great ministry to my soul. Pray they will be to yours as well. Um, But to continue with the focus we have here, look with me at this next part of verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's calling people to repentance was really the crux of his announcement for those he was preparing. God's elect would have to realize that they have nothing to offer. Their self-salvation, their self-righteousness would fall far short of God's standard. No, they would need to be willing to confess their sin and embrace a life of repentance if they would be truly saved. John's call for people to come to the waters of baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins was the Lord's way to prepare hearts to be humbled and ready to die to self and live to Christ. The effective call on God, on all whom he saves, is first to show us our utter need for the Savior. We have no hope for forgiveness of sins, for reconciliation with God without Jesus. It is to see the bad news before we embrace the good news. It is all of this that is the gospel that is, is taught and is God's effective call on our soul to see our grossness before his holy standard and then have faith to, to lay our lives upon Christ fully for all that he must do for us to be saved. Many who don't have ears to hear never embrace the good news because they first don't accept the bad news of the reality of their guilt and sin. Right? And for those that you're witnessing to, that's where many of them are stuck. They, they see themselves too high. They, they see themselves as being in some kind of good and fine place with their eternity with God on their own terms. When you think of the baptism of John the Baptist and what, what he was performing, there's an important clarity we need to see here. Because it is not the same as our new covenant baptism that we practice in obedience to Christ's command. John's baptism was not the same meaning as our new covenant baptism today. Our baptism is for those that God has already given saving faith. It is a symbol, it is a symbolism to show solidarity with Christ, burial, and resurrection from the grave. 
New covenant baptism is for those already forgiven of their sins. It's a public testimony of what God has done. John's baptism was filled with a different kind of symbolism, highlighted by the need to be forgiven for their sins. Their need for cleansing, for washing, for turning, for new beginning. The symbolism of the washing of baptism was one that the prophets of old connected repentance to for a long time. We, we see this type of symbolism in places like Isaiah chapter 1, 16 through 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. It's important, church, that we see that John's use of baptism was unique to him and this time in life and ministry, right? Uh, his message of preparing people for the Lord and his salvation. I mean, just like the symbolism of the Passover Seder for the unleavened bread and the wine were given a new purpose of symbolism in the Lord's Supper and what we now practice today. The same, the same meal, elements of it, but different. And, and that's how we need to see John's baptism versus the baptism we practice today. John's baptism was a prophetic, estological washing that points a person to become ready for the Lord, the salvation that he alone brings, the baptism that portrays a fully forgiven and redeemed individual to come. It was a way to identify people the Lord was making ready. Right? This is the uniqueness of John's ministry. By bearing on their conscience a clear view of their need for repentance. Their need for forgiveness of sins. To say it once more, the baptisms that John was performing were not for the forgiveness of sins in a final way, just like the sacrifices of the old covenant system could not truly and fully bring atonement for our sins. All these pointed to the one who could truly provide what was needed for the true and full forgiveness of sins. Jesus himself crucified in our place and resurrected to new life. Consider the fact that John's message of good news pointing to the arrival of God's salvation for the forgiveness of sins was one that the world was so desperate for. For those enslaved to sin in general and the unique audience of Judaism, for those who were caught in the legalistic shackles of Judaism. In this, John's message offered hope to people buried under the weight of sin and guilt for their lack of ability to perform enough good deeds to be saved. As a result, multitudes would flock to the Jordan countryside to hear this strange prophet with a penetrating message to their burdened hearts that they were desperate to hear. Luke 3.3, 3, he went out into the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Before we move on, let us be reminded just how important true repentance is, not only for salvation, but for all of life. 
for all who walk by faith in Christ. Luther famously said it in his 95 Theses that he posted on the door of All Saints Church, Wittenberg, Germany, thereby beginning the Protestant Reformation. The first of those reads, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ says repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Luther's clarifying that all of the Christian life is one of humble repentance. In other words, we don't just identify and turn from our sin once at salvation, but God's spiritual work in us means a new view, conviction of, and urgency of calling out sin and turning from it. This is the work of God the Holy Spirit in us in light of the gospel. It's a daily, if not hourly, practice for the Christian for all of this life until glory, until glorification. Repentance is turning from the sinful practice or path that we're on unto a righteous one. It's the testimony of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Hear with me this morning that it's not just enough to say I'm sorry. It's not enough to just say that you have a problem or that you were wrong. If you don't turn from the sin and faith unto what is righteous, then how have you truly honored God? What good is your testimony to a watching world if you claim the saving power, the forgiving power of Jesus, but you stay stuck in your sin, stuck in your guilt, stuck in your hurt? Proverbs 28.13 Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. This is the practice of repentance. Christ in you, and hear this clearly, Christ in you doesn't mean you no longer struggle with sin. No, we all do. Right? Until glory, as I just said. And even in some and in some seasons can struggle deeply. But Christ in you means you will no longer snuggle up to your sin. Because the Holy Spirit in you will stir in you a, a lack of tolerance to be close to it. That's the beautiful work, the discontentment, the conviction of the Holy Spirit to make war with our sin, to grab it by the hair and drag it into the light. As inept as we feel, as, un, as, as broken as we feel, we acknowledge and we act on the Spirit within us. Praise God. The world says repentance is an experience of disempowerment. But the Christian sees that it is necessary in everything to honor God. It's actually a sign of strength. I think about how strong you must be to repent, to say I was wrong, and then be committed to make changes. It takes courage and humility. This is the evidence of Christ at work in us. The weak thing to do is to keep running down the road to ignore the conviction of the Spirit, to continue to be in bed with the sin that we have been haunted by. Pride is such a killer. It's toxic. Your pride will convince you that you're right, that everyone else is wrong. Your pride is so powerful that it literally can motivate you to believe lies, call them truth, so that you don't humbly practice repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. 
whereas worldly grief produces death. John is sent forth to stir the landscape, that there would be a view of a need for repentance, for forgiveness of sins, a need for a savior. John, when John says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, 2, he's saying, repent in light of the gospel, in light of the arrival of the Messiah who comes to save. Repent in light of the fact that God has revealed himself and provided a way for you to see your sin, hate your sin, turn from your sin unto what honors God and not your flesh. If you do not yet belong to Christ, it is my deepest prayer that the Lord is opening your heart to see your sin and therefore you to see your need for the Savior, Jesus Christ, so that you truly will in his appointment, his power, repent, believe. If you belong to Christ, church, you know that you are saved. Know it. Don't ever lose sight of it. And it's by nothing that you do that secures that salvation or keeps it secure. It's by Christ alone. Amen? Christian, you need to know when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Psalm 34, 17. Galatians 5, 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Church, we need to live in our freedom in Christ's power. John beautifully captures the good news of this reality for all who are saved in 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Church, see with me the Lord's supernatural work in many in John's day to be prepared for the Lord's salvation by helping them see their need for a Savior their need to turn from their sin, their need for new life in Christ. Finally, Luke recalls the prophecies of Isaiah from long ago about the work that John the Baptist would, would do. John 3, 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The prophecy of Isaiah points to the announcer of the Christ coming from the wilderness. This is John the Baptist, the ministry of John the Baptist that God has ordained for him, ordained from before time, but also spoken of him generations before through Isaiah. It's happening. It's here. It's now. This is Luke's reminding and in, in, in recounting this here. And the other thing that Luke is highlighting from the prophecies of Isaiah 
is that the obstacles that have been hindering of full repentance unto salvation are being removed for those whom God has chosen to save. God himself, church, is the one who does this work. The imagery here is powerful. See it with me. God changes the geography, so to speak, of our lives to make a way for the Lord's salvation that is free of all obstacles. This is true in regards to what must be done by Christ to make a way unto salvation, that he doesn't save and finish his work, but there's still some kind of obstacle we have to overcome. He is the antitype, fulfilling all that the types pointed to. All. But it's also in, applicable to the individual's life when considering all that, that we're saved from. When God brings his grace to bear in a person's life, their crooked ways are made straight, their valleys are filled in, their mountains that they once labored to climb are flattened. This is the gracious and powerful work of God to make a way for salvation for his people in Christ alone. It's not this offer that's at afar and I stand over here burdened by this obstacle. He clears the path for all that he's going to save. Paul speaks to this reality for the believer well in Romans 6, 6-11. through 11, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would be no longer enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he has died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Hear it again. The voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. Every crooked and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. We need to see here the amazing work of God to not only send His only begotten Son, but to truly do a work in every heart to be readied to believe, to be rid of all of our excuses and obstacles, and unbelief. To unstop our ears and to open our eyes to see and savor the good news of Christ. Praise be to God. Now, quick clarity when it says, Luke 3, 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. He is not saying all mankind will be saved. Scripture, interpreting Scripture, makes this clear. He's saying all kinds of flesh, all kinds of mankind shall see the salvation of God. He's making the point here, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. This is truly revolutionary news in this day. The foreshadows 
This foreshadows the conclusion to Acts 28, 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. See with me this morning, church, that John was announcing to the world. The Messiah is here. Be prepared for true repentance, for forgiveness of sins, for true salvation is not just for the Jews, but for a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. I'm thankful for the Lord's work and will in John the Baptist's life. He truly is a great inspiration to me, literally one of my favorite in all of Scripture. And I pray that God's work through him would minister to us today and in future sermons as we study God's appointment for him. That we would see God's amazing work to bring salvation to us all who belong to him in Christ Jesus alone. Let's pray, church. Sing together to our good God who's worthy to be praised. Father, we were grateful for a time such as this that you appointed to do this amazing thing. And oh, how we can get tired of waiting. And yet, your people waited for generations. John himself waited for decades to do the very thing you gave him life to do. We thank you for your work in these, for their faithfulness to see it through. We're thankful for the way that was prepared for the Lord, really the beginnings of the church. The church is about to be, to form and take shape. And what an amazing thing it is to think about those first brothers and sisters who were getting ready, getting ready to be the church, to be a part in this new season, this new era. We're thankful for the faithful of old who put their faith in the Christ to come. We're thankful for your sovereign hand and amazing grace to, to do this work at all in any of us and then to give us an opportunity to be part of it. How sweet it is, Lord, that we would be moved more, more than anything to just worship you, to be grateful, to feel secure and, and settled in your finished work in our lives and moved and motivated by the Spirit to serve you and make much of you and your gospel in these days. We love you. Hear us, Lord, as we sing of your glory, as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.